sure, as long as the machines are working and you can call 911. But you take those things away, you throw people in the dark, you scare the shit out of them, no more rules. Just like how some filmmakers have thrown out all the rules when it comes to adapting the work of H.P. Lovecraft, allow the cast of Cthulhu to be your guide to the world of cinematic H.P. Lovecraft adaptations from the superb to the truly cosmically horrific. I'm Jim Rohner. And I'm James McCormick. And today we'll be reviewing 2007's The Mist, written and directed by Frank Darabont, based on the novella by Stephen King, and for the first time in the history of the cast of Cthulhu, we have a guest joining us to discuss a specific title. We have, very specially joining us from the West Coast, Jerry Smith, the co-host of The Pod and the Pendulum Podcast. Jerry, thank you for joining us so early in the morning, your time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I was up maybe 25, 30 minutes before we started recording, <laughs> so I'm excited. Yep. I'm excited. Um, and I have been up for hours, but have not uh, made any attempt to uh, dignify myself. <laughs> so this is this is what, this is what we do for the movies we love, I suppose. And I'm, I'm I'm halfway through it. I'm like I'm a few coffees in, but that's about it. Nothing else. <laughs> but um, yeah. So as as we said um, on last week's episode about chill, we're kind of doing we're going back to spiritual adaptations um, in July for the cast of Cthulhu. So we figured the mist was one we had on our list for a long time. I had Jerry on my other podcast, I Do Movies Badly, and he was enthusiastic about talking about this one, so I figured, why why wait? We'll get right to it. And I guess with that, I want to start out with, Jerry, you had mentioned on Twitter that you have watched this movie three times this week in preparation. <laughs> you, wow. You love this movie, so I, I first want to hear your thoughts on your experience with it, your, your journey with The Mist, and why you love it so much. It's interesting because the first time I watched it, I hated this movie. Like, I, I saw it opening night, you know, a huge Stephen King fan, and I liked, you know, uh, Darabont's previous work. And uh, I went on a blind date to see it. Uh, my date hated it. <laughs> Talk, talked talked the entire movie. Uh, uh, yeah, thankfully, I never talked to that person again. Uh, <laughs> but I, I watched it, and at the time... You know, I had recently gotten divorced. Uh, you know, I, I had custody of my daughter kind of mostly by myself, you know, like a single parent kind of thing. I watched mm -hmm. The Mist, and it wasn't just the date experience that soured the movie, the, the first viewing. But, like, when that ending hit, mm -hmm. like, I felt such a gut punch that I walked out of that theater just, like, just angry, like I was just angry at the world that this movie existed, and I, I have no right, no idea why. But like, you know, over, like as time went on, I'd revisit it. Just like when the Blu-ray and the DVD special edition DVD came out, and there was that black and white version. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, I, just, mm -hmm. I wanted to see that version, and I think it was that version that made me kind of reevaluate it and see it for what it is. And it's such a good movie. And it's a movie that I've, I've learned to, I, I've grown to appreciate more and more with time. Like it's, it's one of my favorite movies now, but at the same time, it's also a movie that I could, I can't watch that often, which says, which I mean, kind of contradicts the fact that I watched it three times this week in preparation for this, <laughs> but it's, it's a rough one, but I mean, you get everything with this movie. You get, those themes that Stephen King is so good at writing, you get Frank Darabont's take and that ending that Darabont came up with, I think is an all timer. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the lack, I think the lack of score for a lot of the movie works, you know, in its benefit. But then at the end you get that, that wonderful, wonderful song, you know, that, that goes over the most depressing scene in history. 
<laughs> I just and the performances are just amazing. Like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this one. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to remember. I know I've read the novella, mm-hmm. but I can't remember if I if I if it came first or if I saw the movie first. Um, but my first experience watching it, I know it was I was living with a roommate at the time who was a big um he, he was a big Carpenter fan, a big Frank Darabont fan. So he sat me down and watched this movie with me. But he because he had the DVD, he's like, listen. I know it was shot in color. Darabont wanted to shoot it in black and white, but couldn't get the permission. So we're going to watch it as he wants. So the first time I watched it was the black and white version of it, which oh. um, is really oh. cool. Like spiritually, I mean, obviously people who are involved in filmmaking know you, you can't just take the color out. You have to light and, and you know, stage for black and white. But it, it was still kind of cool to to get that vibe of what he was trying to go for. But it was basically kind of like a, a, a 50s B sci-fi movie kind of in a way. Like that's what he was trying yeah. to go for, which I thought was really cool. Like Harryhausen-esque, you know, mm-hmm. trying the, the, the early Harryhausen and even Night of Living Dead. He yeah. was trying to, like, emulate, which, I yeah, I saw it first in color, but then fell in love with it when I saw it on that two-disc DVD mm-hmm. and watched that black and white version. And I remember it clicked with me with that. Like, I, I liked it. And I always love movies with depressing endings. Like I, I'm, 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 he does. I'm, I'm, you know I do. It's like, oh, it's got, a, it's got an ending where every, and no hope is left. Oh, please give it to me, give it to me. But, um, and I'm such a happy person, which is so funny. I love, love this ending. But, mm-hmm. but this film was like, it just struck a nerve. And like at the time, I was like a really big Thomas Jane fan, you know, and like, and like also, you know, we'll, we'll get into it, but like loving Drew Struzan's art and them mm. basically saying this is if Drew Struzan was like his character of Drayden and what he would do and like I remember just getting so so pissed off that his um gunslinger painting gets destroyed by the tree I'm like god <laughs> oh, damn it see yes. that that's like the biggest like you know horror thing right there's like he just tosses it you're like Oh, it's still so beautiful. Don't throw it away, please. <laughs> see, see that? That makes me so happy to hear because uh, if there's one thing that I annoy the hell out of my wife with, <laughs> it is my love. It is my absolute adoration and love for Drew Struzan. Nice. Like, yeah. oh my God. Like, I, I've, I'm a lifelong just obsessed with that dude. Oh. Uh, so, okay. yeah, I mean, even seeing it like opening night, that was one of the things that I did like about it the first time. Is you, right from that opening, I mean, Thomas Jane basically plays Drew, you know, like yeah. you have all those paintings, you get, you see the thing in the background and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And for the yeah. longest time, for the longest time, that was our first kind of like cinematic uh, experience with, with the Dark Tower and Gunslinger, yes. you know, like that was so huge for like any fan of Stephen King to see that, yeah. you know, and, and rewatching it this week, uh, 55 million times, it seems, uh, <laughs> you know, it. It, it's cool to like think of that and be like, man, I remember being excited about that. But then, you know, reality sets in. I was like, yeah, but I eventually saw the Dark Tower, and uh, you know, it was yes. a different experience. It was a different experience. <laughs> it was. It, it, it was definitely an experience. I'll say that much. <laughs> yeah, and, and Jerry and I were talking a, a little bit off mic about this. Of like, there there seems to be since King has ro- risen to prominence specifically in like, I guess, you know, in the late seventies or in the eighties there, there's been like each generation had a filmmaker that is sort of like this generation is going to be, or, or, or this generation is going to have this person kind of be the King stand. So you had Mick Garris was kind of the first one with a lot of the adaptations that he did. And we can debate the, the quality of them on a different conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And then Darabont seemed to come after him. And now we have Mike Flanagan and, and I, sure straight up love the stuff that Mike Flanagan has been doing to be completely honest with you. But like, and, and Darabont kind of 
fell off of that. And I wonder what caused that, whether it was his attention being focused on The Walking Dead, which we all know how that ended up, or even just looking even at some of the stuff that Darabont has did, The Mist Included, um, not really financially successful so much. I mean, this one was pretty cheap and made a, a decent amount of money, but not gangbusters uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm just kind of wondering... And and this is rhetorical more than anything, but just like what what caused Frank Darabont to to fall out of that? Because he was, he's a, he's a very good filmmaker for the most part. I think for the most part he might have gotten tired of uh, that being his reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I don't think Flanagan's there yet because uh, if if I remember correctly, I think he's working on Revival next. Yeah, yeah uh, another but... cosmic horror. <laughs> oh yes. God, so good. <laughs> Uh, so excited about that but flangan's not to the point where he's like you know i really don't want to be known as the stephen king guy right you know like you know huge fans are gonna be like yeah you know absentia you know oculus you know those are great hush yeah sure but for the most part you think of flanagan recent like most recently and like it's stephen king you know like like you said and i i think maybe darabont i think maybe he perhaps maybe got to the point where he's just like, I don't want to be the guy that just does a lot of Stephen King stuff nonstop, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think that could have been it. I, yeah. I think, I think you're, I think you're kind of right about that. Cause it seems like he just dropped off after the mist. And then he went into what we all know the story, you know, of his behind the scenes turmoils with uh, the walking dead and that, mm-hmm. how, you know, he basically left after the first season. That's kind of like when I left that show, like I never, got into I, I love the comics so it's like weird mm-hmm. that like it, it, it just didn't translate as well to me but with i think with flanagan he's 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 taking stories that either you know like written by king now but that are not i don't know not really typical i, I don't know dr sleep yeah it's a sequel to the shining but he did something more with that yep. even yeah. more than the book you know what i mean so and i think he darabont's from like the dollar babies club you know of, mm-hmm. of king he, you know back when you know you could i mean you could still do it today but get a short story by king pay a dollar to him and then you can make a film and like as long as you don't make profit off of it you're it's like a calling card so that's that was darabont you know he was in the horror world and then then you see him jump into like shawshank redemption <laughs> which is you know quote unquote always like the greatest film on any like you know mm-hmm. imdb list and stuff like that and then <laughs> The Green Mile, which I enjoy a lot, but that's also like a depressing yeah. drama. I mean, you know, it, it it it's probably watching it now. I'll probably be like groaning throughout the movie, but when it came <laughs> out, I was like, you know, I'll probably be more sad. Just like Michael Clark Duncan has passed away since. Yeah, so it's like, oh, I, I love that guy. Oh man, but then you know, you have the mist. You know, what was it? I think maybe four or five years later, after the Majestic which was a yeah. Jim Carrey movie that he did. Which everybody know? forgets about, and I, yeah. I, I can't even comment it's, on because I haven't seen it, so... It's not it's not bad, and Bruce Campbell has, like, a weird cameo throughout in, like, yeah. the background during a movie <laughs> that's being played, but... And it's just weird, because then he got into, like, the TV thing, and it's kind of like he's been stuck there. Like, I think... Didn't he do um, the L.A. Noir show or something yeah. right yeah. after? Mm-hmm. And that yeah. didn't do well. Nope. You know what I mean? So, so he's kind of had, like, this weird string of, like you know, not the greatest stuff behind the scenes or, you know, just didn't do as well as people had thought. And then I think he's working on a new movie, like a Civil War movie right now. Last I checked, Frank Darabont. But again, not going back to that world of King, which 
yeah, I think he just kind of like was like, hey, you know what? I think I told three really good stories in their own way. And I'm, you know, we're cool. I'll, I'll go on. Like, like as opposed to Mick Garris, who I love his cheesiness. But, you know, that's kind of like how he always is, Mick Garris. You know, like, yeah. he's, he's such a nice guy. And like, you, you, you're like, oh, at least he tried. You know, like, that's what I love about Garris, you know? The thing about Darabont, and, like, it's funny that you're talking about the Dollar Babies thing. Uh, I there's that kind of like reverence towards King that Darabont has. And it goes back to, you know, the dollar baby thing. I actually have a dollar baby project. Uh, mm. And that was like the most surreal moment of my life is <laughs> getting, getting a contract from Stephen King that I had to sign <laughs> that I had to sign in FedEx with a dollar. Oh my God. It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get to adapt rainy season in a short. Oh wow. Nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I haven't worked on that for a while, but uh yeah, it's it's funny because I mean I, I could be wrong. I'm sure you guys know uh, more about this than I do. But didn't Darabont with the Dollar Baby thing make like a short version of the Mist like in the like 80s or? I'm trying to remember the one he did because he the one he did you can get on a VHS with um it's the Boogeyman. Oh okay. And yeah, and, right. and 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 his story, which I can't remember what the oh you know what the woman in the room. Is the story okay? Yeah, yeah, okay. You're right. You're right. But that's what it was. That, and it's a very surreal, like, take on, like, you know, it's like very weird movie. Like, it's it's a very odd one. But so was the Boogeyman. And I guess those two did well enough that you could get on a VHS. Like, they were like two of the more high profile Dollar Babies. Especially What's at that funny time. is uh, in the contract for the Dollar Baby, like, you have to send Stephen, you have to send King a copy of your film so he could just have it in his collection. Right. And Imagine how many like, has. I know. Oh, wow. And like I think that's the reason that I ha- I've like been stalling on actually like developing like mine <laughs> more than I have. It's cuz I know there's not a chance in hell that Stephen King's going to look at anything I do and be like, "Man, that's great." <laughs> you know, like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not getting a VHS, guys. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I'm 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 joking about this, but just even imagine he does and he hates it so much that he <laughs> tweets about tweets it about it and yeah. tweets it at you and then you just you can print it out and frame this like hated tweet from Stephen King right? that you can just kind of right. hang on your wall. That'd be yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. He probably oh, signed it. He probably signed it for you too. So <laughs> yeah. We did uh one of the, the script readings we did on the pot of the pendulum was Maximum King. Oh man, mm-hmm. have you guys read that script? No, I've heard. I've heard, only heard of it, and how oh, that, that shit insane. God. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a fictional uh, version of the making of Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> no, which and... a lot, a lot of cocaine. Is oh I'm no, sure. that's that's <laughs> one of the major. That's one of the main characters in the whole script is cocaine, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and it's cocaine. Nat Brimmer, Nat Brimmer, the the writer, he played Stephen King, and it was one of the best performances I've ever heard in my life. Oh my god, like, Nat. Okay, oh, awesome. Like, I'm gonna have to joke with him about that. Okay. Oh yeah, there's a scene in the script where Stephen King and you know through our production, Nat Brimmer played him, mm-hmm. does karaoke of I think Back in Black by ACDC <laughs> with I think Dino De Laurentiis there. <laughs> no, like like we recorded oh. it. If you guys get some time, it's one I'm of those like to. off the rails reading ever because I, I I think maybe two people were sober by the end of it. Nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah, Stephen King, man, Stephen King. <laughs> so, so the the mist. Um, <laughs> it's I, I know one of the things 
one of the things that I love about this movie is how slowly and effectively it builds up to what ultimately is going to happen and just the characters are so well done. I think this this may have been my first introduction to or, or the first introduction to Andre Brower that I can recall. I'm sure I came across his, you know, some of his work uh, in 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 my life, but this was the first one where we really kind of of like, holy shit, this guy is really good. Um, yeah. And if anyone watches Brooklyn Nine Nine, I don't know, I don't see why he doesn't win an Emmy every single year for his portrayal of of uh, Captain Holt. But um, and just like and how. It does such a good job of establishing the characters early on so that when the shit hits the fan, you like it makes sense that Andre Brower's character responds this way, that Thomas Jane's yes. character responds this way, that Marsha Gay Hayden like it just it all makes so much sense and I and I, I love that. It, it's one of the most it's one of the ad, uh, the King adaptations that I think makes the most sense in in the sense of Darabont understood what made this story effective and he adds to it and builds on it and makes it even more powerful, I think. No, you're well, right. It's it's almost like you could take this script and just make it a stage play. Mm. And like, like you know, you didn't have to have many special, you just have a stage play. And each scene is like, it's like a, a theater experience where you just have all these actors just giving it their all. You know, like, and I kind of judge it by, like, I watched it the other day with my girlfriend who had never seen it. She was familiar with, you know, oh, I, I remember when I came out, you know, but I never saw it. I could judge how a movie will catch the audience, at least even from a different perspective, because if she's bored, she'll fall asleep. She'll like, she'll look at her phone. She'll like do everything but watch the movie. Mm-hmm. And I mess, I mess with her about that. But <laughs> this one, she just like was up the whole time. She, and, and at the end, she's like, wait, that was over two hours. That was, mm-hmm. and, and it builds, it builds that tension from even from that first start. And you, you know, you're in it for the ride and, the ride is like one of those really like janky roller coasters that like every time you think, okay, well it, we're cool right now. Then something slams and like your whole body just goes into like almost like a weird convulsion. And you're like, okay, maybe it's calm now. And then something else happens and it ratchets the tension so much. And that's why I love it. Like it just builds. And I remember like the, the first theater experience I had with where I liked it, but people were like, screaming we're like you know looking at the special effects now in the color version it's like ooh, some of those are a little questionable but it's like it's 2007 questionable back then it looked it looked pretty good you look at it now you go we've come a long way but we're still not completely there but it but the black and white version gives it that old like stop motion look Mm. and for some reason that makes it creepier and that's why i kind of like i love like i love having both versions there's to showcase that where you could see a movie in two different lights and you go, okay, like it works a completely different way with the black and white version than the color version, but they ultimately both work and give you that same sense of like sadness at the end, you know, either way. Totally. Uh, I think the only issues that I have with the movie now Mm -hmm. uh, is in the color version. Uh, You know, the effects are kind of dated, but uh, watching the black and white version, that's never an issue for me mm-hmm. whatsoever. It just works so well with that. Yeah. But I, yeah. I think I think in the hands of like a lesser filmmaker, The Mist could have focused more on the monsters and less about the people. And yeah, I true. think that that's what makes the film just resonate with me so much is that it's very much about the people dealing with the monsters and dealing with this kind of like uncertainty of what's going on. And I, And you're right. I mean – there's so many good performances in that movie. 
And what my favorite kind of horror films are the ones that take their time to get you deeply invested in the characters that by the time stuff happens, like, you know, you're already on board with these characters. You're already kind of like living vicariously through what they're going through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Thomas Jane, man, like he is one of those actors that he could be in a bad movie and I'll still enjoy the movie. Exactly. Like, like, and, and it's been that way for so long. Like I remember I went to the theater opening night to see the crow city of angels. Oh, and so it was just I, like, so and, I, oh boy. and I was just like, and I, and I'm actually a big fan of that movie. Uh, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of what could have been, you know, it could have been, and I want to see that cut. But uh, I remember walking out of the theater, being like, okay, that was definitely not the crow, the first movie. <laughs> yep. And, but that dude with the wig that was really creepy, like, <laughs> what was with that dude? And then I, I remember HBO did the premiere of the last time I committed suicide. Mm. With nice. with Tom, Thomas Jane playing Neil Cassidy, the famous you know beat poet writer, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know Keanu Reeves played this kind of fictional version of Kerouac, and that was the first movie that I saw with Thomas Jane that was actually you know acting acting. You know it wasn't like him being silly in a peep show in The Crow City of Angels, right? <laughs> and like from that moment, like he's been one of my favorite actors. And with and really, it's a little, little tiny side story, but I think it's funny. The first time I ever went to Comic Con, I think it was like two thousand seven. And it was my first experience with, like, a bigger, bigger convention like that, you know? And I, I had my little daughter in my arm. I had this backpack. I was really stressed out because I was overwhelmed because I'm, I'm not good around a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I go in there, and I'm like, oh, man, this is a trip, you know? There's one table. There's a stormtrooper. Mm-hmm. You know, there's another table. There's Mark Hamill signing autographs for, like, a million mm-hmm. and five people. Mm-hmm. And this other table that no one's going through, oh, that's cool. That's just Thomas Jane. And <laughs> I was like, wait, what? what? <laughs> and so... I go over to this table and he's signing autographs and giving away free posters for God, a movie. I can't, I'm trying to remember the name. It didn't come out for a couple years after that. I think mutant Chronicles or something like that. Oh yeah. 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 That was a big comic con. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> and I, I went there and he, and I mean, this is the first time I had ever been face to face with someone that I actually appreciated the work like on that level. And, and he just goes, so, uh, Hey man, how's it going? And I was like, uh, uh, I'm, I'm okay. And he's like, okay. Uh, and he's like, so, uh, are you having fun yet? And I froze and I looked at Thomas Jane and this was my moment to impress this dude, this actor that I've always appreciated. And I said the first thing that came out of my mouth and I'll regret it so much till the day I die. I look at him and my eyes get wide and my smile gets big and I go, I am now. (laughs) <laughs> and i was like a 26 year old kid completely embarrassing himself in front of thomas jane and he smiled and i just grabbed the poster and walked away i still don't think i got it signed oh. like i was <laughs> so every time i watch the mist i'm just enthralled by his performance and everyone else's performance but i can never forget that moment where the guy probably looked at me going like man that kid is definitely special okay yeah, yeah. He's definitely I, on some sort of drugs. <laughs> brief, brief tangent, but I want to share this story with with the world, and hopefully this will make you feel a little bit better about yourself, Jerry. Um, 2008-ish, I'm doing coverage of the New York Film Festival at uh, the, the uh, Lincoln Center. Well, it's not Lincoln Center, but James knows where, where the hell it is. I, I know. The, 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 big, the big theater over there. Um, yeah. There's a lot of buzz behind this hot, young um, visual artist making his feature film debut with a little title called Hunger. 
Um, and of course, this filmmaker yep. is uh, eventual Academy Award winner Steve McQueen. Um, Ooh. I have a bunch of questions lined up. I did a whole bunch of research on this guy, but I like I so I knew about his past work. I knew about his approach to filmmaking versus visual art, and but I didn't know anything about his personality. Ah. So as an icebreaker, so I'll, I'll preface this by saying <laughs> this did not break the ice. I, I said, so my first question to you is, uh, how often do people get you mixed up with 70s action star Steve McQueen? <laughs> and he does not even respond to me. It's just a blank stare with, like, I'm sure a slow blank. And I'm like, well, fuck this. If there was a way to, to make it worse, I don't know what it is. But now it's just behind that eight ball. I'm conducting the rest of the interview. And I don't know if it was his personality or me or both. But terse answers clearly not interested in continuing this conversation any longer than it has to go and when it was done it's like well let me just let me let me get a crowbar to get my foot out of my mouth basically <laughs> that's, that's funny i'm such a huge fan of that guy too yeah, I, yeah. I love his work uh when my wife and i uh, met you know we were talking about movies and uh like an idiot and i was and she was like uh, is there any movies you really like that i should check out and i go yeah shame Oh, and she's like, she's like, she's oh, like, I haven't, I haven't heard of that. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll let you borrow it. And, mm. it, 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 and we actually talked about this this week, which is weird because it's like four years later. Mm. She was like, you know, I didn't know if I wanted to talk to you after watching that. <laughs> like, it was a great movie, but it was such a bad idea to let someone you're talking to yeah, right. that you've maybe met once, you know, like. Ugh. I mean, it could have been worse. You could have been like, "Yeah, last house on the left," and she'd be like, "Oh, let me check that out." Um, right. Th this would have. <laughs> I got this great, great, great feel-good movie, Solo. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise yeah. known as but 120 it's... Days of Sodom. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah that Lord. one. No, you don't yeah. say that part though. Well, right, sure, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny about those experiences. Uh, I met John Carpenter uh, once with my wife while we were, like first started dating, and. You know, that's that's God to me. It was right, at a signing yeah. for like the making of Brig from a little China book. Mm -hmm. And he got he went up there and again I froze like an idiot. Mm -hmm. And he goes he looked at me and he goes, Man, that's a lot of ink. What's up with that? <laughs> you know, I have a tattoo and I right. just stared at him in the face. <laughs> John Carpenter. And my wife my wife's looking at me like, dude, what the fuck's uh, going on? And he's staring at me and he just goes, Okay. And just start talking to the next person. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I mean, The Mist is good. Yeah, no, but it's a very good movie. Um, <laughs> well, 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 what's funny, like, a little sidebar with the John Carpenter and The Mist like, connection is that I love Stephen King was originally going to call The Mist The Fog. But then when he saw the John Carpenter film, he's like, okay, I'll come up with a different title. He's like, I'm going to call it Halloween 2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's just a funny little weird thing. Like, imagine a world where... The, this, the, the Mist was like John Carpenter's version back then, and then The Fog was like Stephen King. If he, if he had come out a year before with the story, it would have been called The Fog. <laughs> it's like a, such a weird timing. Could you imagine that double feature? Oh, like, man. Like they, they should just give out like Xanax with that. Right, right? And, <laughs> and and a lot of dry ice. In, in the oh, yes. Oh, that'd, be, that'd be great. You, you know, it, oh, the theater. It's uh. it's funny. I was thinking about this movie not just because we were going to record this, mm -hmm. but this past weekend, um, my wife and I uh, and a friend went up to uh, the Adirondacks for like a, a a weekend to get away from New York City in the pandemic, basically. And yeah, it's every now and again a movie will strike me. This movie does it. Halloween does it. Where it's just the 
suburban setting like adds something to it in the sense of like this couldn't have happened in New York City or in LA like this could yeah. have only happened in New England right. or 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 the you know we're up in the Adirondacks there's a lot of little neighborhoods that look just like this little town mm-hmm. um and just that idea of I don't know that's something I love about horror movies like that I mean I I was born and raised in the suburbs I'm a city guy now and you know how how my future is going to go I'm kind of I go back and forth about it but there's just something I love about sitting around Halloween and like there's a trick-or-treaters outside and I'm watching this movie and just kind of thinking like this could be happening right outside my door right now and it mm-hmm. adds something to it and that's what I I love about this especially we know if we've grown up in like a small town like we know these characters we know these people these this response especially fuck man we're we're in a mm-hmm. pandemic right now where people <laughs> are actively rejecting the objective right. reality of what's going on in front of them. And yet we see this movie and like, holy shit, like this is a universal truth of people just like, no, I'm, I'm refusing to accept what is happening right now. It's, it's like real life horror. Yeah. Or they yeah. find, or they find something to use as a crutch. Mm. Like in it, this case, it, as King's trope of using religion, like, you know, Catholicism, whatever you want to say as this trope. But it, it but the thing is, that's what scares me more, more than anything is the breakdown of society of mm-hmm. like people that are usually pretty well intentioned, but then some one person that has a, a, a louder voice, wait, this sounds like something that's been going on for the last four years. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but uh, God. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's kind of scary actually that it keeps on coming, coming through, you know, Stephen King, you know, sadly is tends to, it's, it's funny thinking about how, you know, we as film fans, you watch horror films, you go, oh, those people are so fucking dumb. What the fuck? They, they, they have all the ways to get out. And then we see it happening in real life. And you'll go, oh, so, you know, you can wear a mask. You can wear a mask and you can actually not catch this disease. People actually actively say, no, I'm fine. Oh, wait, I have COVID now and I'm dead. And you go, wait, but you knew. You mm-hmm. knew. It's there. But again, these these tropes that we grow up with going, oh, we shake our head. How dumb can they be? I look outside the window and I see it every day. I've I've always been uh, (laughs) the most terrified of people more than monsters. I love Mm -hmm. monsters with a passion. Like, I I think I love monsters like Del Toro loves monsters. Like, Mm -hmm. I prefer monsters over people. Mm -hmm. But, like, people scare me. And I think that that's what makes the myth so effective. Yeah. That... It's yeah. not about the monsters in the sense that Cloverfield really isn't about the monsters. It's no. basically the notebook with a monster going on. <laughs> you know, yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. the mist, the mist, it's all about that Lord of the Flies approach of yes. people turning on each other. And if you, you know, when you watch the movie, you see people that start off on one side and like the rational side, like William Sadler's character, yep. that eventually yep. something happens and it's traumatic for him. That he'll buy into whatever Miss Carmody's selling because yes. he needs some hope in his in his life, mm-hmm. even if he doesn't realize that it's toxic and 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 violent and awful, you know. And th- I think that speaks to a lot of of what's going on. I I think that yeah, the majority of a certain kind of person <laughs> they're pretty idiotic for following like you know some mm. a pretty crazy regime, but yes. at the same time, I can understand some of them because it's just like they want something to believe in it's just unfortunate they choose the wrong thing Mm -hmm. and i think that that's what king does so well and i think that's what darabont does so well with this film and especially the performances Mm -hmm. you know like i don't want to turn this into like 
a Thomas Jane, you know, love. Fest. <laughs> Please do. I, I love Thomas Jane, so let's but, love him all we like, can. I watched it again last night with my wife, and it was just like I was just taken back. I've seen this movie so many times. I was just taken back with how honest and earnest and realistic his performance is. Yeah. He's not afraid to be completely vulnerable. You know, other actors mm-hmm. at the at that Indian and like many times throughout the film, other actors would have been like you know really dramatic and manly with his screams. Right, Thomas one, Jane one, one sounds, tier. Mm-hmm. Right, Thomas Jane seems like a little kid under a table crying at the end and yes. it breaks your heart. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes this film so powerful. You care about every single character in this film, even the assholes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. didn't want Andre Brower to die. No. I wanted him to kind of see the light and be like, yeah. Hey, you're kind of right. Mm-hmm. You know, because as much of an asshole as he is, like there's such humanity in this movie with every character, you know, like, I, I knew going in that Carmody wouldn't, she would never turn around. So no. I mean, that was one character I was like, you know what? Fuck her, shoot her <laughs> right from the beginning. <laughs> but every other character, like the, I forget his name, but the soldier that gets killed. Oh, Private like, Jessup? Holy crap. Yeah, Private Jessup. Jessup. Yeah. Holy yeah. crap. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Like yeah. he's begging and crying for his life. And and they just slaughter him and throw him out to, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. God knows what. Yeah, and I that it's such a good movie that just punches you repeatedly. You know, I watched The Lodge a while back. Okay, and uh, that's another feel-good movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, I think films like The Lodge, and you know, as much as I appreciate those movies, they they kind of punch you in the gut without ever. It's it's not that they don't give you hope, but there it just it seems unnecessarily cruel. Mm-hmm. Whereas the mist, right. all these awful things happen, but they serve the story so well that it makes you feel worse because you're seeing really bad things happen to good people. In right, and, not, and it's earned. It's earned too. Like and, it's, mm-hmm. it's an earned sadness, not well, you know. And yeah, an even more effective punch in the gut because, like you said, the movie isn't cruel, but it does have this implication or this this subtext which gets back to the Lovecraft element of this podcast and this movie itself that you really kind of feel like when the ending finally comes, that it was sort of an inescapable destiny for everyone. Like as soon as this mist rolls in, the cards are dealt and there's no way that anyone can escape what is going to happen. Like because it says because Darabont knows these characters and writes these characters so well, it's just sort of this idea of once shit hits the fan, no one is going back. There is no one crossing lines. It is just going to play out as it is going to play out. And there was no way that anyone could really escape it, which is horrifying to think because it's it's that idea of, as you said, Jerry, bad things happening to good people and the fact that they didn't have any control over it. Um, right. It's baked into this, you know, this film from the very beginning. I mean, that quote that I read it just kind of hints at this thing of like, yeah, human beings kind of have this facade of civility, and then once that goes away, it, it, it's no holds barred, basically. And, th- and there's a hopelessness to that that the film sticks with from the very beginning. I remember when I first saw this movie, I actually did think the ending was kind of cruel until I rewatched it a couple times and thought like, well, no, that that was always going to be how it was going to be, basically. Yeah, the last desperation, the and, and and it's such a gut punch because of what happens right after, and you're mm-hmm. like, like if only you waited five more minutes, five, yeah, that's like, it. 
Like, and that's what's like, kind of like what's a, a, a great, and then and I love that's Darabont creating that from the original ending where they just kind of keep, they keep driving and they hear on the radio Hartford. Like, yeah. Like, it is staticky thing. And I love, like, that's a great ending too, because that, but that gives you hope. That's hope yeah. behind it. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe there's some salvation. Maybe there's some sort of, like, any post apocalyptic movie you watch tends to have that mentality of, like, well, there has to be some place that is like the, the underworld is going on, but there's salvation, there's utopia. Mm-hmm. And even Doctor Who did that with, like, when the, the you know, me, me being a Doctor Who nerd, <laughs> when the master finally came back and utopia is like the last place of of salvation maybe these people can survive the end of like you know of society but it's what's scary that it's it's almost like king himself saying okay well you know society can crumble in less than a couple of days but no matter what you go shit that's true but then you can like have a choice between you know you all dying horribly possibly by not using the gun and going, you know what, let's just go out there and see what happens. Or I have four bullets left and there's five of us. And, and, and imagine, you know, like I watch it now, you know, older, I'm, you know, just turned 40. And like, I, my girlfriend made fun of me cause I was just like crying. Like I was sobbing yeah. so much with Thomas Jane, just going, I can only, fathom having not only just to kill myself but like imagine oh i'm gonna kill these four people i care about in different ways my own son and then you already you know he's already seen his wife dead so he has not you know he only has his son and he's like he wants to give his son peace Mm -hmm. so then he can go out there and get horribly maimed and then oh thank thank god the soldiers finally came through even though they're the cause of it all the scientists at this base and yeah. you go and 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 I, I love the illusion of like how far did this go was it just this town yeah, was yeah, it yeah. A test? you know mm-hmm. you don't really know and and because remember they drive for a, a, a pretty long while and then when they get you know like he had what like maybe half a tank of gas or a quarter of a you know whatever it was mm-hmm. it was enough to go maybe let's say a, a few hundred miles and it was still going on so this thing blew up whatever it was and you have you know, watching it again and again, you know, the first time you watch it, you don't, you almost don't think about the two soldiers that kill themselves, even though they kind of tell you, oh, wait, they, they knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. Like they actually knew they heard the stories, but did nothing about it. You know, they just said, well, we we're just going on leave. You know, we wanted this to go on vacation for whatever long. Mm-hmm. And it just gets worse and worse. And you go, you know, if only, and that's a love, you know, that's a Lovecraft thing that the, the combination of horror and science and mm, yep. how maybe you shouldn't tamper with science that you don't know anything about like yeah. different dimensions why 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 do we know need to know there's different dimensions but being a nerd i love that stuff in comic books and movies like when there's different alternate versions of characters you go oh damn that's awesome but then you go no that's terrible when you think about it. like do i want to meet an alternate version of myself where i'm like the worst person ever no mm-hmm. i would not want to do that that's, yeah, see i already that think that about myself uh, <laughs> <laughs> well that's the yeah i know right you're like wait i'll find a better version of myself but no but that's what i mean like i don't want to yeah. find any version of myself like i made mistakes i've made choices and like that's my you know ultimate timeline but do you want to know about someone that had one little lucky break or maybe didn't have a lucky break and did better because they fought harder. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a weird concept to have, but like, like why would you go to it? And you know, we've seen this time and time again in everything, like Stranger Things. It's the same 
same story. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, yeah. different dimension. Why? Well, because we wanted to see what else was out there. Yeah. Okay. It's this playing God thing, that, and I, yes. I've always been so enthralled with that in films. You know, like, and especially like in a cosmic war sense. Uh, and one of the many things I love about The Mist and a lot of like cosmic horror films, uh, even like Lovecraft adaptions, like Color Out of Space was kind of like this. I liked how The Mist threw the typical, you know, quote unquote, like hero approach out the window. Yes. Like it's so realistic that you think the whole movie, you think you know who will get away. You think you know, you know what I mean? Because we're set up to think that because of films that we grew up watching. Yeah. And at the end, who's the one that's okay? The woman that nobody would help out of the supermarket. Right. Like, you know, like, it's it's so realistic in the sense that, like, in real life, like, the universe and, and just life in general doesn't give a shit about, like, who's good, who's bad, yeah. who's a religious fanatic, who's no. a father just trying to protect his son, you know, like, any of that. Like, and I, I love films that do that that kind of take this kind of preconceived idea of what a film's protagonist should be and, you know, who should be the, you know, hero and get away at the end and just throw it out the window. At the end of the movie, Thomas Jane's on his knees wanting to die. I mean, my wife last night, she was like, man, I'd throw myself off a fucking cliff right then. <laughs> and it's like, I'm sure he did. Uh, oh, you yeah. know, but yeah. like, and that last shot with that beautiful song playing and then you see Melissa McBride's character just holding her kid almost wanting to smile at him. Yes. You know, almost, almost. kind of like, <laughs> you know, like I, I love it. I love that. Or like even color out of space. Like I was so excited to see that movie and man, it, it delivered for me. Mm-hmm. But I, I love the fact that like walking into that, you know, I mean, if you're not familiar with that story, you know, I understand like as a viewer, you, you wouldn't know that, but what, like seeing cage kind of basically turn into this, like, crazy version of himself and all this <laughs> stuff like i love films that do that and especially like cosmic horror films that do that yeah. that it's 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 about like it's kind of about reality in a in a sense of like in a way of not like not having reality and i love that kind of dual like dimensions you know and and i i think lovecraft did that perfect yeah. perfectly and I, I think darabont did such a good tribute to him with this movie you know and I, he took those subtle things that were in the king novella and amplified them i mean god i love the creatures in the mist yeah, so yeah. much mm-hmm. and there and it's not just like one kind it's no. not just it's not just like a fanboy going oh man we obviously got to put something that looks like cthulhu in it <laughs> you know and yeah. as much as i loved loved underwater so much and that big reveal got me almost standing in the theater going yes <laughs> uh it at times it felt like, okay, whoa, what do we do? Because the original script of Underwater, it was a giant shark, I believe. Oh, like okay. a huge, monstrous, like huge, massive like shark creature. And I, it, it almost seems like, oh, well, what's a good way to get people excited? Oh, I'm just going to throw Cthulhu in there. Mm-hmm. You know, like where it just didn't make much sense. Whereas like The Mist, there's so many different creatures and they, they, they're all so different you know like it's not just one kind of creature like you get these insects you get these kind you know the the tentacle based creatures Mm -hmm. it's not just one kind and i I think that seeing that kind of uncertainty of like what you're about to see because when norm dies you're like okay well it's obviously a tentacle 
creature, you know, maybe Cthulhu-like. We'll see what's, where this is going. And then you get giant insects, and you're like, wait, yeah. never mind. There's something out, and something yep. else out there in the mist. Mm-hmm. And it adds giant like spiders. exactly. Yeah. It adds this uncertainty to you as a viewer to where like like the characters you're watching, you have no idea what you're about to see, and it makes the film so much more effective for that. Yeah, you and you have that thing at the end, which is. I guess I'd kind of describe it as if uh, H.R. Geiger had to had to draw the the AT-ATs for for Empire Strikes Back. Like that's what he would have come up with. Um, no, it, it's crazy, and it's funny that because yeah, just we get back to this idea of at the end, if he would have just waited a few minutes, if in the grocery yeah. store they would have just listened to what they had. It's all these things of like if only people or mankind or humankind would have just done this. If they would have just worn masks, and of course people aren't doing that and james you brought up something interesting that i never occurred to me before of Mm -hmm. the locality and how how much geography was affected by this just imagine and i'm thinking Mm -hmm. if this was only kind of a certain region not even all of new england maybe just a county and then you have another part of the story where in southern california nobody's even aware that this happened and just how how that adds even more to like the oh god like this this didn't matter in the grand scheme of things and just how Right. Ugh, my lord, that's even more of a punch in the gut. That and, I mean, there's no going back after this. No. no. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, like, if they would have waited two or three or five minutes, yeah, they could have got saved. But at the same time, what happens to that butcher at the supermarket that right. murdered someone, you right. know, mm-hmm. when they do get saved? What happens to all these people that were offering up people for a sacrifice to Carmody? Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, like when they get per, like when they get saved, when they you know when they get rescued. There's no going back for any character in this entire film, and I find that so just just enthralling to think about. It's mm-hmm. a film that like, and those are my favorite kind of horror films and my favorite mm-hmm. films in general. That when they're over. You think about things that the film didn't even address for yeah. like days mm-hmm. on end. Like I'm wondering, like what is going on? Like what happened to that supermarket manager that had to run back in the supermarket because you know he right. was going to die during the escape? Mm-hmm. Right. Like it, it's it's storytelling, I think, at its best. No, that's a that's a really good idea, and it's then I think Jerry was you that mentioned Lord of the Flies, and I'm just imagining. <laughs> After the mist has cleared and the soldiers are coming out, and you just have that soldier that comes up to to Thomas Jane, just being like, "What are you? What are you kids doing here?" Kind of, and just that idea of like, "What? What right. has been happening? What? Like, how is this your response to what has sure. been going on?" And it's just like, "Yeah, it's man, I I didn't think I could feel feel that this film was even more bleak until we started having this conversation about it." Yeah, I mean, yeah. what does he say? Hey, hey, by the way, buddy, did you just shoot your kid in the face? Like, what's yeah, up with that? Yeah, and and he shot a woman and an old woman and an old guy. What what the fuck? What the? Why did you? Why did you snap so easily? Yeah. Like you could quote unquote say that like three days. You know, it's not that long of a time. Like, yeah, it looks bleak, but so you know, and it's also the lack of hope. You know, that's that hope is taken away. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's completely thrown out the window, especially when these. You can look at him as the, the the civil group, you know, and like especially, and like Jerry, like you said too about the atypical hero. To me, like the, one of the most heroic people in this movie is Ollie, played by Joe yeah. Jones, mm, a yeah. guy that the wait he knows how to use a gun. Why? Because of the way he looks. You know what I mean? Like he looks like a like a nice like just like you know quaint guy, but he can shoot. Like he can act, and and he's a big hero, and he dies horribly, but like yeah. helping helping the ones that he's been trying to help the whole time, and it's like. You get the atypical hero. You get, you know, 
this breakdown of society where, yeah, like I, I'm the same way where I think to myself, do these people just go on with their lives? Is it a secret that nobody will ever mention again? Like, you know what? When when the cops and the the soldiers come, we just have to pretend we just stayed in here, nothing else. It's like almost this dark secret that they'll always have. And yeah. you know, it's all it's almost like depressing to think like how many people are gonna, you know, commit suicide after all this, you know, because we've already seen them do it inside, like yeah. you know, like the soldiers and stuff. So like you you know, can, you think any of them are going to say, oh, yeah, I stabbed this um, guy almost to death and we threw him out. No, you're not going to say that. Yeah. They're not yeah, going to say I, that. I, I didn't just stab the guy. I, I stabbed him three times in the yeah. gut. Yeah. Oops, yeah. my bad. Yeah. That, no- that And, like, you're right about the character of Ollie. He is such a great character. And, yeah. I, you know, I've seen this movie so many times, but I picked up on something last night for the first time. How bad he feels about even shooting Miss Carmen. Yes. Yes. Like he yes. apologizes to everyone and says, if there was any other way, I would have done it. And he's right. And like, it, it, the writing is just great in this movie that they take somebody who just killed the film. And I, I do think she's the main this antagonist in yeah. this movie. Definitely. Like the monsters, we don't know what's going on with them. Just kind of like Alien. The aliens were just minding their own. You know, mm-hmm, right? Like, they were just minding their own when they were kind of, you know, Ripley and all of them came to fuck shit up. <laughs> but like this one, like Carmody's the villain, and Ollie feels awful about shooting her. And I, I think that that speaks on that character. And I mean, God, Toby Jones is so good in this movie. He like so he's so good. I, I remember when you know those two Hitchcock films came out at the same time. It was uh, Hitchcock and The Girl, I believe. Yes, I, yes, I, I, I preferred so. I preferred that one because it wasn't just like you know a, a kiss kiss Hitch's ass piece like the other exactly. one exactly. And same know, thing and, with, with with when he did the two Capote films and he was yeah. in the other one. You're like, oh yeah, yeah. Toby Jones always gets like the lesser known version, mm-hmm. but he does such a great job. He's so good. It's like it almost pisses me off. It's like why does he always get like kind of tossed under the radar? And it's sadly like you know Hollywood is a very um, looks oriented you yeah. know place but but he has somehow had this career where he can actually headline some films like barbarian sound studio which is amazing oh god so good so good and then like and then you get to all these great little like character like actor notes like this and even hell even in the freaking marvel universe like he's zola and like <laughs> and he's so great in that too even something like that and you're like wow this guy is so good like he we don't realize how good an actor he is until you look at all his roles you go wow he's always different he's always mm-hmm. something he kind of changes your your you know con, you know perception of him like in this one uh, completely you're like oh i'm like even my girlfriend's like wow yeah, oh he's he, he's actually the hero he's the one that's like shooting things trying to get people together try trying to put food aside for everyone so they can sneak out like he's he's thinking ahead and you're like man like and he was just an assistant manager at this grocery store. And yeah, it just shows definitely. that you could be more than what, you, what you're perceived to be. And I kind of, I love that too about this film where it's like the characters that you think are some way are completely opposite of what they are. Like the, the you know, where evil lurks, it's the religious person, which, you know, it's like, they, of course, she's like talking to herself to something that I don't recognize as God. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, you know, no matter what. So it's like almost like, She's like that militant, just crazy person. Anyway, no matter what would have happened, religion or not, she's just a bad person. 
I I think the Carmody character really speaks on how I think in in any belief system there's always somebody trying to pervert it to benefit themselves. Yeah, right. Of course, you perfect. know, and like I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a person of faith whatsoever, but at the same time, I've met so many and I've known so many people that are just fundamentally great people who just believe what they believe, and I think when it becomes more about trying to get other people to believe what you believe to like set yourself up higher. I think that's when it gets dangerous. And I think that character speaks on that so well. It's not about a relationship. It's not about her faith to her. It's about being, uh, you know, in her own words, the vessel, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and I I think Mm -hmm. that not just religion and not just like Christianity at times, but I mean, any faith in any belief system, I mean, you know, not, not to get super political, but I, I feel like there's a lot of that going on, and there's been a lot of that going on for four years now. Yeah. You know, it's like this person does not believe what they say they believe. They're using it to dupe people, you know? And and I, and I one of the many things about this film that I, I just, oh God, like the more I talk about it, the more I'm like into it. Uh, I, I think one of the many things of a great director, like a stamp of a really good director is knowing your cast, you know, like you could be a great director, but you have, if you have a crap, like if you have like a bad group of like cast members, it's going to ruin your film. And I think Darabont, like so many other filmmakers like Tarantino or I mean, Chris Nolan, all these people, they rely on the actors that they know will do a great job. And this is why we see people like, you know, Laurie Holden, uh, Jeff DeMunn, mm-hmm all these people go on and other stuff with Darabont because he knows these people are great actors and it shows in the mist. I love right. seeing, I mean, going back to even the blob with Jeff DeMunn, you know, like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's been one of, you know, Darabont's people for so long and it, it's fun to watch the mist and then go on and watch like that first or season or two of walking dead. And I only watched the first, I think season and a half of that show. Yeah. It just wasn't for me. And, and I, I too was like, I'm a huge fan of the comics. But it's funny to see this is kind of like a jumping off point to The Walking Dead's cast. Yeah. You know, like like when I like I recently had to revisit Alien Resurrection, which I'm not happy about for for our podcast. And <laughs> it kind of felt like that was Joss Whedon's first attempt at Firefly. Right. You know, like it, it's fun. to It's funny to see like things like that or like the mist that kind of feels like, oh, you know, this is the first go around to like this set of cast members. I have been a fan of Lori Holden since um, the X Files, which is my yeah. favorite show of all time, yeah, and her being, yeah. you know, um, Rita Covarrubias, yeah. and the the arc that that character went through and how well she handled that. So when I saw her show up on The Walking Dead, I was super pumped. I gave The Walking Dead more time than you guys did. I quit after season three. Oh, okay. But here's the funny thing about The Walking Dead: season two is probably some of the worst season of TV I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> I and I tried to actively troll and start Twitter fights with Glenn Mazzara, but the thing is, he's such a nice guy. Yeah, he is. That I would like criticize something, and his tweet would be like, "Well, I can't wait to hear what you think about the next episode or something." Just like God, this guy is impervious to criticism because he's so nice. Um, but yeah, that's a have have either of you seen the? Because I know the Mist had a short lived like TV series. I never did. Yes, yes, I did. Yes, I, I did. I, I, not, not that good, I see. <laughs> no. 
Well, it became it became yeah. more about it, it became more about like they kind of oh, see. I'm trying to word it to where it doesn't just sound like I'm just shitting on that show, but uh, I'm probably just shit on the show. Uh, <laughs> it became this weird thing where it's like everybody would get infected and want to do awful things like murder people. Oh. Like it, it felt so like detached from the the novella and the film. To where, like, the the novella and the film were very much about, like, you know, people reacting badly to, you know, uh, that situation and kind of, like, you know, all these structures falling apart because of that. Whereas, like, the show, it's like, oh, the mist is causing us to do these crazy things. And it's just, it felt just so weird. Like, maybe if it was called something else, you know, but, like, it, yeah, right. it's not a fun time. I, I do want to talk about one one criticism that I have of the movie that I was talking to to Jerry a little bit about, and this is, I really appreciate watching, revisiting stuff that I have watched numerous times, but with my wife who comes at it from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. um, right. And one of the things I, I, I was telling Jerry this off mic, that when we got done watching this movie, and according to my Facebook memories, two years ago today, we watched this movie together. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, uh, after it was done, she she expressed something which was close to hatred of the movie, and one of her reasons was, and this this gets the a common criticism of King's work in general, and I think you could probably say of Darabont stuff as well. The women characters, the two most prominent women characters, are pretty one dimensional. Um, now, Marsha Gay Harden is great as Mrs. Carmody, but she is also just like she is the villain, and then Laurie Holden as Amanda is kind of the caregiver, and that's kind of the type that they they choose yeah. to be and now i'm not saying that ruins it for me but it was like interesting as a guy watching this guy's movie written by a guy and and then kind of be like oh that's yeah that's something i never really considered before well it's funny you say that because even my girlfriend made the comment of oh so thomas shane's gonna get with uh laurie holden's character now i'm like no why would you say that it's like well because she's being written like the new girlfriend wife and i'm like and I, I thought about it. And I went, that is weird, actually. Like, it just so happens that his wife herself didn't come, but then they had to insert another caregiver type of character to be there for his his son when he's freaking out. Well, when he has the, to be an the, adventurer. Yeah, totally. In the novella, they do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Right. But, I mean, no, I, I agree with you guys 100%. Like, that that's one of the only things that kind of, not takes me out of it, but kind of right, like, right. come on, give us a little more, you know? And, and that is right. that is a weird thing about King's work is that I, I... Now, granted, I haven't read a ton of Stephen King's work, but the, the stuff I've read is like, I, I wouldn't necessarily call him a misogynist, but he no. doesn't seem to... He seems to have an, an inadvertent, or advertent, I don't even know tendency to kind of write women characters that are sort of being punished for what is that like i'm thinking of cujo where right. like the, it's the woman trapped in the car and it's the woman who right. was the one i think that was having the affair and so it's the subtext of sort of like she's being punished for this thing that happened to her the and in it the oh, a weird right. yeah, gangbang scene that king has has weirdly staunchly defended um I, yeah, and, and just a bunch really. of stuff where it's like uh, okay if you're if you're not going to do them well then I, I would prefer that you kind of not write them at all but uh that was even i read dr sleep and i saw the dr sleep movie and i really like what flanagan did with the film but also maggie the hat i don't find to be a particularly interesting character i 
I, I think that he, what he did do right in, in one of his uh, uh, books, and definitely Flanagan did great with the movie, is Gerald's Game. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you, you get a character that starts out very much as a victim, very much, you know, right. kind of what you're talking about. But the whole book and the whole film is very much about that woman coming to terms with a life. I mean, just a life of being victimized nonstop and finding herself and finding her own strength and courage. And I think that that's one of one of his books and definitely Flanagan's movies that just really gives us a great female character and a really good like arc for that character. But I mean, I I, I do agree with you. Yeah, I'd say about 90 percent, you know, I think here and there we get some good characters in his work, though. Yeah, I mean, he's he's so prolific that it, it's going to happen at some point, and I at least have to give him credit for his exchange. I mean, his, he'll write his... 15 books next year, and I'm sure at least <laughs> four of them will have. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. That's I, so true. I, I don't understand. I, I, I remember reading something about a conversation he ha- he and George R. R. Martin had where it's just like you have one of the most prolific writers and then George R. R. Martin who takes literally years in between <laughs> just putting something out and just like, how do you do this? But yeah, like, I mean, with, with King, we, we kind of know politically and, you know, from his Twitter account and how he's very, you know, anti-Trump and anti, like, and then the whole thing with the J.K. Rowling thing recently yeah, where... That was, that was pretty good. Yeah. Which, you know, I understood he was doing something but not realizing what it could actually say. And, and I love that someone asked him straight out and then he straight out said it and she deleted <laughs> the tweet of, of phrase. And, and it just shows, like... Like, King is at that age right now where he's just, you know, I think he's even said, like, writing some of his earlier books in his Coke-fueled days, he, he not, not 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 necessarily regrets, but he's probably like, yeah, I don't know what the fuck I was thinking sure. at that point. But, and, and, and that's the thing. Ultimately, it's really like, you know, he writes what he quote-unquote knows. So, like, he, you know, like, when I write, like, stories and, or screenplays, you know, it's it's hard for me to write a proper female character because i'm not a woman you know mm-hmm. but yeah. but in my past when i you know depending on who i was with at the time like i would ask them for pointers like you know hey what would a girl say if this is what the guy says at this point and i would get a completely different line or a few different lines that i go wow i didn't even think about that right right depends on how he says it oh yeah shit mm-hmm. and i don't think a lot of writers do that a lot of writers just write what they know and what they think a woman would say or vice versa. Like a woman writing a guy might sound a little weird Mm -hmm. or what they, what they project. It's what you project onto the character. So I think that's a problem with a lot of just writers in general. Like they, they can't help it. You know, none of us really can help it when we're writing from a different point of view. It's like, unless we have that point of view to give us a little insight, you know? I mean, it, it, this is this is this can open a whole separate can of worms. I mean, <laughs> mo- most relevant to me. So recently, James and I are, are members of the HP Lovecraft Historical Society, and on their yeah. Facebook page, just last week, I posted something like, "Hey, can someone recommend me titles that are Lovecraftian from like women or people of color?" Just because the right. idea is they're they're going to be a different perspective on this idea of cosmic horror and that kind of thing, and it's like a different experience. The vast majority of people had good recommendations, check out yeah. this author, check out this collection. And then there were some people who whose responses were basically one of two varieties. One was kind of like the I don't see color and the other one being kind of like this is offensive. Oh my God, like I, I just... 
people, different life experiences are different life experiences. I don't yeah. understand how this is a thing. Well, but, yeah, I, I remember that one person said, uh, oh, well, if someone asked for a Jewish authors only, that would be, and I'm thinking, no, like, because I, sometimes I want to read about the Jewish experience because yeah. I'm not Jewish. Sometimes yeah, exactly. I want to read about the yeah, Hindu totally. experience. I'm not Hindu. Like, but that's sadly that those are those are the people that say they, you know, have one black friend and they're, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's that mentality where they, 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 they don't see color. That's, okay, sure you don't. <laughs> Unless you're colorblind, you're full of shit. Like, oh. you're, you're not, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it makes no sense to me when people have that excuse, you know, like, Oh well, that's offensive to me because what should it matter what the author is? I'm like, it does matter because then I could see from a different perspective. I, I like to be uh, open to everything, not just uh, enclosed into one. But, no, totally. I, I agree with you 100 percent on that. Yeah, but in th- that's all around about what you're saying. Like, so King isn't the greatest <laughs> when it comes out, but I'd also, I guess, prefer someone who's like, listen, I'm going to write what I know. Versus someone like a, a Joss Whedon who writes the strong women characters, and then it turns out, oh no, he's actually a really shitty human being. Yeah, that's... <laughs> isn't that usually how it is? A, a, sadly, a lot of times it seems recently too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I, like there's been like a, a ongoing joke with my wife and I, like how many of our heroes are we gonna like hate yeah. by the end of the year? Yeah, I yeah. mean, Ryan Adams was one of my like favorite oh, yeah. oh, songwriter for decades. Mm-hmm. That one and then all that, so much. Oh, all that stuff broke, and I was just like. God really damn it. I was a huge fan of Brand New and the stuff that came out about Jesse Lacey. Yes. And yep. just like, oh. God, that. And I mean, I I love David Simon. His his defense of James Franco has been a little bit like, eh, but A little iffy, but yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Eh, okay, but yeah, it, it's that whole thing of like, don't don't meet your heroes. Uh, or, no. or, or meet your hero like Jerry did and then just uh, don't say anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the, that actually sounds better. Like, like when I met uh, John Waters for the second time, I was the only person that brought Seed of Chucky for him to sign. <laughs> and he goes, "Wow, you're the first person and probably the last to bring this." I'm like, "Yep." He's like, "Okay, see you later." <laughs> see, that, that's what I love about Carpenter. Is like I already know he's going to be grumpy. I know. So I know. it's like, okay, okay, you know, he 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 basically gives you you know what he is right from the bat, so you're not let down. It's not yeah. like a lot of stories I hear about Tom Savini where he's just like a real oh, piece Lord. of shit. Oh, is he really? Supposedly. But like mm. I've had friends that tell me the opposite where you and, – and, and it's not just like beautiful girls because supposedly if you're a beautiful woman, yeah. he'll give you more time. Yeah. But like I've had some guy friends that say, no, I mean he, was, he wasn't like a dick to me. He just said, hey, how's it going? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh cool. Thanks. Mm. So I'm like – so I don't know. Sometimes it's, it's perspective too of that. Like, like your heroes, sometimes they have a bad day. But then – well, that that and like, what do they owe us? If mm-hmm. you really think about it, like mm-hmm. we're, you know what I mean? Like I know, I know. Tom Savini sitting at a table, and to be honest, I'm I'm not defending him. He he was no. a dick the t- the time I met him too. <laughs> but that said, like I wasn't that let down because it's like, dude, I'm right. walking up to his table, I'm giving him twenty dollars, he's giving me a photo, he's writing his name on it, and that's the end of the you know interaction. Right. Yeah, it, exactly. it's not like. The only interaction that I've ever had, and I do not mind calling this dude out. That's fine. The only bad interaction I've ever had. I just, for the longest time, Hellboy was my favorite comic around. Mm, Like, I was so obsessed with that movie. Yeah, yeah. And the the book series before that. Mm -hmm. And I went to to Comic-Con one year. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to get a sketch from Mike Mignola. I'm going to meet this guy. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. 
and it was the same year. I believe it was the same year the Thomas Jane happened, thing happened. So <laughs> I went from like this dude that was like super nice. I go up and I had my daughter in one arm, backpack in the other. So I was like overwhelmed already. Right. And I, I, I give Mike Mignola money because obviously that's what I was there to do. Mm-hmm. And and I go, hey, is there any way I could get a picture with you? And he goes, yeah, I guess. And I go, <laughs> okay, cool. And then I think his wife or someone was next to him. I go, is there any way you could take this picture? Because I have my daughter in my hand. And he snaps at me and he goes, you're going to have to take your own picture. And I go, oh, okay. Okay. And I just take a picture of the ceiling and just walk away. Oh, and no, like the flip side to that is as I was walking away, I heard a voice going, hey, come here. And it was George, and it was George A. Romero. Oh, oh my and, God. And, 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 oh, oh, dude, great, <laughs> great ending to the story. And I walk up to him speechless because I just yeah. basically had my, my you know, fanboy <laughs> heart broken. Mm-hmm. And George Romero goes, hey. There's always going to be knuckleheads at some convention. Come talk oh. to me. Oh. And he talked to me for like 15 minutes to oh. make up for this asshole. Oh. Like that's the only bad interaction I've ever had with someone. But like yeah, they don't owe us anything. But at the same time, like people are there to give you money and pay you, you know, at least pretend to give a shit about them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not like some story like my dad would tell me when he was uh, growing up in you know New York City. He would go to the – Yankee games, um, and this is like when Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford were playing, and they would all they would be drunk by the end of the game. They would be like plastered, mm-hmm. and then would go out to party more. And then my dad telling me like, "Oh yeah, I tried. You know, one time I tried to get Whitey Ford's uh, um, autograph, and he ran after us with um, a baseball bat trying to break it against our heads." I'm like, "I'm like, did you sneak onto the field?" He's like, "No, we were on this. He jumped up." into the stands to chase us <laughs> i'm like what the fuck but i'm thinking wow those are the times when like video cameras weren't around as much like yep. after the game so you didn't catch that and i'm like oh my and then some people would like smear their autograph like like they'd sign it oh, even man. if you paid it and then they'd like do the little smear mm-hmm. i'm like that's an asshole like you don't do that like don't be a jerk i i Either. haven't i haven't met many celebrities uh, and even some that i've encountered i'm like they don't want me to approach them, so I'll just kind of stay here. But I never really. Kind of. But the the one example I can point to, uh, years and years ago, I used to do like a director interview show, and I interviewed Darren Lynn Bousman for Repo: The Genetic Opera, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I wasn't particularly a fan of his Saw movies, and I even wasn't particularly a fan of Repo. But I, you know, I got the chance to interview him. Such a nice guy. Like he asked me for my business card. I didn't give it to him. He asked me for it and he put it in his wow. little like pile of business cards that he was collecting that day. And he was just like, Aww. God damn, it's like I, I wish you this were a better guy. director. That but- guy that guy is seriously one of the nicest dudes around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We went to uh we I went I was covering the premiere of the second two thousand and one Maniacs movie. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh, oh boy. And there was a secret after party after the premiere. And you had to know where this, like, kind of speakeasy little bar was. Like, mm-hmm. nobody even told you where the fucking location was. Yeah. And so, like, I was walking, trying to find this place that was supposed to be nearby. And Darren Bowsman was walking next to me, and he's like, hey, dude, I have no idea where this place is either. Do you mind <laughs> if I tag along? And I was like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the whole time I was thinking, like, man, his pants are so baggy. But, you know, he makes Saw movies, so this guy's cool. And, like, <laughs> any interaction I've ever had with that dude has been so pleasant because he's, he's so humble and nice. And to be honest, I can't stand Repo. 
No. I, I was not a fan of Devil's Carnival either. I'm glad that it has its fan base, but it just wasn't for me. Right. But I, I really love when you meet people that even though you're not a fan of like some of their stuff, they're just nice people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like right. uh, I, I sat down uh, and interviewed Fonka Jansen and Eli Roth for Fangoria a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And Fonka Jansen was so sweet and nice and she was holding a dog with only one eye, uh, mm-hmm. you know. But and I was so stoked on on talking to her about you know Hemlock Grove, even though I wasn't a big fan of it either. Yeah, right. And but like Eli Roth was just sizing me up and was so rude the entire time. Yeah. And I don't think that people realize that like, and I, I guess this does go back to the mist a little bit because of Thomas Jane. But I don't think people realize that like these people support your art. You know, they care about your art. Yeah. You know, this is the reason we're talking about the mist is because right. of Frank Darabont and Thomas Jane's performance and so many other things. Mm-hmm. We appreciate the art that you put out. You know, you don't owe your fans anything. You know, you're an artist. You create your art. If they like it, they good. If they don't, okay, maybe next time. Right. But I, I think what makes the mist so, so damn good, more than just the themes, more than anything, I think every actor in that film, I think Darabont especially – uh, I, I mean, everybody has such a respect for their audience and they know exactly what you want to see and they give 200% all across the board. There isn't a single element as far as production wise or, or performances or anything in the mist that isn't firing at all cylinders. It's true. Like nobody's shortchanging us. Everyone is just giving it their all and that's why you feel for everybody. You like when, you know, the, um, the, the cashier who like finally her and the one soldier, you know, Jessup finally have like kind of professed like, Hey, we should go out. Maybe we should, maybe we should get together now. She gets stung and you see her die <laughs> horribly. And you're like, and my girlfriend's like, like she jokes, she's a horrible person. She just laughed. She's like, Haha, you waited too long. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, why am I the one that's always like, oh God, this poor girl. You're like laughing. Like, <laughs> but they finally confessed their love. Yeah, but then again, I, you know, you know why? Because like she, yeah. she deals in the funeral business, so she has to see the, the the fun and the 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 humor and death every day. So I'm like, okay, it makes sense for you. It's just like. Yeah, just give me a tissue, please, while I'm crying here. <laughs> well, there's so much. I mean, it's it's the that kind of subplot with with Jessup and the cashier. Yeah. You know, like it's 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 not just like, hey, I like you, I like you too, but like you find out in a short amount of time that hey, we kind of always really liked each other. What the hell? Right. Like, what does it what does it take this for us to you know to do that? Or even the soldiers, yeah, they knew what they were. They knew what was going on. And even there's like that little comment that basically, oh man, we we were almost out of here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like like, man, like that's such a dick thing to do. But it's like little subplots like that add up add up so well into like telling the story that like every little thing was like intricately planned in this one. Yeah. Yeah. It well, as as I say, it's a it's a lived in world. Like already yeah. we're transported to that world, and it's not even just what they're saying. It's the little nods, the little looks of either, you know, cute flirtation or, oh, like judgment, you know, and like all these little looks alone, it's just, it works so well where you go, okay, that person's definitely bad, you know, with Marsha Gay Harden. And you're like, okay, she's given those looks already. She's judging everybody right from the start, mm-hmm. you know, like 
you know, the, you know, the quote unquote term, she's a Karen, you know, as a, <laughs> she's the original Karen, but like, but you get all these little things and like, you know, even I'll be honest, even like watching it again, knowing how Jessup's character is, my girlfriend looked at him and said, oh, he has a, he has like dickhead face. Mm-hmm. Like, like he looks like a dickhead. Like he yeah. looks like an asshole. He does from, from when you go, oh, is he going to be one of those guys? No, he's a, he's a good guy. He just so happens to be quote unquote involved with something worse, but it's not his fault. He just knew about it. Like, like, but ultimately is that, are you as guilty as the people that created it? Mm-hmm. Kind of, that, because you were, you were trying to escape. You didn't yeah, tell anybody exactly. else. Right. You know, so it's like all these levels, like, you know, the, the people are, even when it's like, sadly, like we were saying, like Jim went like, you know, the female character is very one note, but luckily not every character is one note, you know, like every character has this weird little, you know, little character arcs, even like if they're short, even if it's only like two scenes, like the, the one biker dude, as I say, is like the fake Ron Perlman, Ron Perlman, you know, (laughs) um, you see him, you're like, oh, okay, this guy's just badass. He's just like, hey, whatever, you know, let me see what I can do. And then gets horribly murdered. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you know, one of the best gore scenes in the movie. You're like, oh my God, what the, like, I don't want to see his other half, you know? (laughs) And Jerry, you're right. Cause I, and I think it's those little moments, which, this is a bleak film, but it's those little moments which stop it from tipping over into a cruel film uh, mm-hmm. because it does I, – I can't even say it gives us hope because of how it ends, but it at least gives us, I don't know, solace in the storm, I guess. I mean, just knowing that there are always going to be those people that, like, they're going to try <laughs> – they're going to be the people that are going to wear masks. There are going to be the people who look out for other people, like, and, and it's mm-hmm. – it, it. if they didn't have that, if they did have Thomas Jane's character actually, like – have some type of sexual romance with Lori Holden's, I think then it tips into cruel, basically. Right, right. Oh, I, I agree 100%. And I, I think one of the, really briefly, I think one of the things that uh, isn't talked about as much in The Mist is the fact that it's very much a movie of people being so scared that they try to blame everyone else for their own actions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Andre Brower. You know, no, it's it's you guys. You guys are trying to fool me. You guys are trying to do this. You know, yeah. Jessup's. No, it's not me. It was them. Mm-hmm. You know, it, uh, uh, William Sadler's character. You know, they they completely kind of peer pressured Norm into being the one that that goes to look. Yeah. You know, right, and what happens right. when he basically gets slaughtered? Oh well, we didn't. You know, didn't we didn't twist his it. arm. Right, we didn't exactly. make him do it. You know, like the whole movie is these people dealing with fear and they're so terrified and they don't want to admit they're scared that they try to project it on everyone else. And that is why so many people buying the Miss Carmody shit is that they don't want to think that maybe they did something wrong or maybe they could be in the wrong Mm -hmm. or they don't want to admit their fear. So they project it like, okay, let's go after these people. And I think it's such an interesting concept. It's, it's funny because I'm, I'm reminded of, I think James had mentioned earlier this idea of um, what terrifies you is is this idea of when society starts crumbling. And I think the, the subtext in the story in this movie is it's not a matter of if society starts crumbling, just when. when. they are. It's always going to happen. It's always just below the surface. And just what is the one spark that's going to light it up, basically? Right. It, it's kind of like I, I also, when I watched The Mist, I kind of look at it as like a a great Twilight Zone episode too. Like mm. of, it's got, it reminds me of the monsters who do a Maple Street oh, I love where that one, yeah. uh, it's a masterpiece of like, 
like you watch it like I watched it as a kid and it creeped me out because of whatever and now watching it as an older adult I'm like oh my god like look how fast it, it didn't even take a night like, you know like like and people were already like well look at their light look, yeah look, look their light's going on what they must but then it's like you're like oh my god how easy it is to mess with society like what if there were aliens and they were just like <laughs> what's how easy it like you know that's the joke like aliens are looking down at us right now like oh let's throw something else on them let's see how they react to that <laughs> it seems like whatever you thought was worse oh something worse is coming along and you're like like where, where are the old gods now like uh, they're coming soon they're coming in a couple of months you yeah. know <laughs> I, I mean talk about a guy who had a cynical uh, view of of humankind i mean rod serling god damn it like <laughs> did not believe in the best of us well and that's what i love about serling he he was so cynical yet he did have hope he did have that little sliver of hope that maybe there would be the outliers the ones that but like he liked to showcase the worst of humanity and to see to kind of give a lesson, hey, see these people, you're not as bad as them, hopefully. <laughs> but sadly, it seems like we keep repeating this awful cycle of, well, they're, you know, they're they look different. They 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 worship a different god. They, I mean, hell, like we've listened, George Carlin has had like he had those jokes about this stuff for years, and you're like, it's sad he's been dead for over a decade yet stuff he spoke about in the 90s is still going on today and you're like what the hell like why am i watching a george carlin special now and it's like someone just wrote it for 2020 yep yeah definitely like I, you, you know serling was cynical but at the same time i also feel like he used that cynicism to give like cautionary tales yes yeah. kind of like kind of like this is how messed up everything is and how people always suspect each other of everything but at the same time this is what's going to happen if we don't change the direction we're going. So, I mean, I, I agree. Like, I definitely feel like Ron Sterling was a cynical man. <laughs> but I also feel like he also was really good at showing people that there's a chance to change things. You mm -hmm. know? Like, it, it's kind of yes. a combination of those, of, of optimism and cynicism. No, no you're right. You make yeah. No, you make a very good point. And then also, I mean, just... Tying this back to Lovecraft, I mean, I know the Night Gallery had a couple Lovecraftian episodes, which I'm sure we'll we'll have to get to at Definitely. some point because this idea of just um, inescapable fate and existential horror was probably right up his alley. But and and, and I have, I've had this quote in the back of my head for this entire conversation from the late Toby Hooper, where he said, "Godzilla never scared me, Mothra never scared me, it was people that scare me." Yeah. Um, and it's just holy shit, man! Like, yeah, this, this could be a stage play. You don't have to have a tentacle. You don't have to have anything because no. the monsters are like Night of the Living Dead. Monsters yeah. are actually inside the house. Yeah, and ultimately at the end, when you know, you, oh, he survived the night. Up, oh, put another one on the fire, yeah. and it's such a powerful moment. You go, oh my god! Like, like he he survived. Oh no! And it's like it's a downer ending, but it's kind of like, hey. The time that they were living in. This is this was a big deal. Like Romero will always be like, uh, like like one of one of my favorites just because of like the shit he could do with zombies. At least you know, an original trilogy yeah. mm -hmm. is like to me a perfect trilogy of like how society breaks down in three films, like I mean, so I, fast. Relevant to a conversation I had with Jerry and Mike, um, I would throw Land mm -hmm. of the Dead in there for the quadrilogy. No, Land of the Dead is actually good. Like I, I have to re I have to do a rewatch of that one, but I. I still value that one. It's after Land. It's like he could have yeah, like. Diary I always of, felt bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah Diary and survival. 
Yeah. The Irish like farm. Yeah, I don't the, know. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, less of that the better. But 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 even then he was still trying to kind of say stuff about society, even then. Like mm-hmm. and I kind of valued that about him where I I could tell with Romero he always wanted to get away from the zombies. Yeah. But at the same time he knew that's what the people wanted, so he still tried to make those films even afterward. He's like, you know what? My fans want it. Let me figure out a way that I can still put my imprint in there, but I'll throw some zombies in. Sure. One yeah. final question, I guess, and both of you can answer this, but I, I'm I'm very curious as to Jerry's thoughts. Of I mean, yeah. you, we talk about the, some of those final shots, and when the the truck is driving by in the end, and we see the woman from the grocery store, and she's there with her son, and everything is kind of sl- shot in slow motion. When we see that huge hulking creature kind of walk by, the film is almost kind of in awe and revering that thing like it kind of accentuates this thing of like these creatures weren't the evil thing like they were just existing and look at actually how kind of amazing this thing is yeah oh no i i agree with you a hundred percent um like i said earlier like i don't think the creatures were the villains i (laughs) i don't and that oh my god that shot it's beautiful Mm -hmm. it is just gorgeous you know, there's another uh, a recent movie, uh, Starfish, that I just loved with a passion. And there's this big monster in the background at one point, <laughs> and it's oh god, it's it's another weird kind of cosmic Lovecraftian film uh, that deals with some pretty heavy, uh, you know, thoughts on loss and grief. But uh, no, I, I I agree. Like the way that the music just accentuates that monster in the mist, mm-hmm. like it kind of puts it on a pedestal. Like it's, it's not like a big zinger moment of like, Oh no horror. It's, it's kind of like you guys have been tearing yourself apart, but look at this magical creation, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, to be honest, I want to see more of that window open. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, like I want to see that. Like I, I would have loved to have seen a sequel to this film, you know, that follows someone else affected by this and maybe they would have taken a different direction that all these people would have right you know like i want to see that world and i think that that's what makes not just lovecraftian films but lovecraft stories in general you know the the real ones not kind of like the side homage ones like that world is so just profoundly appealing you know this this idea of like you know like this other dimension of 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 creatures and and uh, existence beyond what we're capable of of you know even thinking about. I think it's so interesting, and I, you know I I get that same reading from that shot that you do. Like it's not set up to be a a monster reveal of like oh shit be scared. I think it's Thomas Jane seeing that monster going. We are so insignificant, right. you know, mm-hmm. and, and I, that's what is so great about this movie. This movie shows how insignificant we really are when it comes to that story. Well, yeah, I, I call it the Jurassic Park moment when, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like you look at this thing in awe and it does not even notice you. It doesn't notice them. It's like going about its business, wandering by. It doesn't care about us. And really, when you look back at all the creatures, they're just acting on instinct they're they're attacking because we're attacking them mm-hmm. like 
like little things like that. Yeah, you could say the spiders or what. Yeah, but people were in there and they, you know, they did what spiders do. Oh, you're prey. We're going to eat you. Yeah. Like we're going to implant our like seed in you and then you're going to be, you know, more spiders are going to be born. That's what we do. It's it's like you can't say, oh, well, that spider's awful because it, it killed that bird and it's going to hatch all these eggs. Hmm. It's just it's it's acting on survival instincts and how we're so insignificant when like I love the concept of the bugs. And it's like this beautiful like scene of like them just floating onto the window. Yeah. But then you see that. But then it's like it ratchets it up because then you say you see what attacks those things yeah. are these bigger bird like creatures that attack they're not attacking us at first they're attacking what they're trying to feed on because it's food yeah we yeah it's food we've brought them into our dimension so it's a mixture they see us for the first time they're like ooh what does they're that taste like scared yeah, yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. They're, you know they're, like they're, they're they flying around yeah they're, they're, totally. they're, yeah they didn't ask cool yeah. They didn't ask to be brought into our dimension. Not we tampered with science. We mm-hmm. tampered with God. We tampered with so many things through this movie that, like, and it's it's like it's like hitting a hornet's nest mm-hmm. and being pissed off that they they bite, yeah, <laughs> or that they sting. They sting. I mean, you right, know, like right. it's it's like these the creatures in the film are only reacting to being brought into a world that they should never have been brought into mm-hmm. you know it's it like we yeah. like humans are the ones that like pretty much created every single dilemma in the mist you make oh, a yes. good point and, and i think if i remember correctly with that one of that last shot of that big hulking behemoth there are birds kind of flying around it and yes. so it almost kind of clues us into like look at how this thing has adapted to its situation whereas what we did was we killed the fuck out of each other. Like, yep. we went insane. This thing has continued living its new life, basically. Right, exactly. W- with, an, with an eye towards wrapping up, I guess, let's, uh, any, any final thoughts on, on the mist? We, we've dabbled around it. We've delved into it. We've, we've, <laughs> we've got on tangents. But what, any, any final thoughts anyone has? Uh, you know, maybe don't open up windows to other dimensions. Yeah, no, that's, that's good advice. <laughs> you know, that's good, that's don't, definitely good advice. It, you know, like I, I try not to shoot my kids in the face when they. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, in all seriousness, I, I love the hell out of this movie, and any very small nitpicks I have are, are definitely overshadowed by by just I think how brilliant the film is. Mm-hmm. It's it, I think it's Darabont's love letter to not only King but to Lovecraft and old monster movies. You know, Harryhausen, like so many things are wrapped up in like this really great love letter and yeah i appreciate the hell out of this movie mm-hmm. yeah kind of getting back to our previous conversation a little bit i do wonder if darabon also has a reputation of being a difficult guy to work with and that's why he hasn't really been as prolific as he could have been i, I think he he has he did submit one of the scripts that ultimately was rejected for indiana jones and the crystal skull right and from what i understand yes. spielberg loved his script and george lucas was like no this bad one instead yeah, that, that, I, I do remember that story. Yeah, Spielberg yeah. would like the better script. We know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, but that's a, that's it for our conversation on uh, The Mist. Um, how do I typically wrap this up? Oh, right. Um, if you want to catch up on uh, back episodes of Cast of Cthulhu, Cast of Cthulhu, good Lord, uh, you can go to castofcthulhu.podbean.com. You can find us on Twitter at castcthulhu. Uh, I am Nolan Fixes Teeth. James is uh, Fistful of Media. And Jerry, where can people find uh, find more of you on the internet? 
I am mostly on Twitter. Like, I have Instagram, that kind of stuff. It's mostly just, like, private, like, me posting pictures of my kids and, and, and pot and cats. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the, Perfect. Uh, <laughs> I need to stop joking all the time. Uh, I have such a dry sense of humor. People think I'm serious. Uh, anyways, but I'm mostly on Twitter. Uh, it's uh, Jerry is just okay. Uh, it, I, when I started Twitter about 10 or 11 years ago, I didn't start Twitter. I mean, I joined. Uh, I'm not Jack. But uh, it was I, I had no followers, so I thought it'd be funny to be like, Jerry is awesome. And then when I started like writing for a living, you know, everyone just thought I was really arrogant, so I changed it to Jerry's just okay. Uh, but yeah, that... Uh, I co-host The Pod and the Pendulum. It's a podcast basically where we tackle an entire horror franchise, one movie at a time, one episode for each movie. Uh, we're just wrapping up the Alien series. Uh, really fun uh, conversations in that one. We're starting the Joyride series. Oh, which, yes. God, I, I regret. I regret <laughs> pushing that so hard. Well, that uh, first, that, that going, first one's good. That first one's good. Don't you know, uh, Joyride 3 is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, because because every once in a while I like to be punched in the face with something that's not very good. Uh, <laughs> but after that, Nightmare on Elm Street, we, we like to do uh, script readings for films that haven't been produced. Uh, we try to have fun. Uh, but yeah, there uh, I write for Screen Magazine, Dread Central, a bunch of sites. So I always, I always have stuff that's coming out. So uh, yeah, mostly Twitter. Cool. Yeah. And I, I, I've been trying to push Jerry and, and Mike uh, to cover... Romero's dead films because basically selfishly I want to come on and talk about Lane of yeah. the Dead which is how yeah we we like to have you know anyone that wants to come on the show uh we also every once in a while we we like to have people involved in the films too like we've mm -hmm. had we had you know one of the directors of the Blair Witch Project on the Blair Witch series mm -hmm. you know and even like actors that like movies like uh uh, AJ Bowen's been on a couple times just to talk about his love for Jason Lives cool. awesome <laughs> so yeah definitely <laughs> Um, in a shameless self plug, but also, okay, this is what I was talking about yesterday on my other podcast. Can it be a shameless self plug if you are currently involved in your own podcast? But I don't know. Um, no, I'm not involved in that podcast, so it's okay. Right, but in on I do movies badly. I just wrapped up um, the films of Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead that uh, yeah. Jerry and Mike recommended to me. And yes. one of the things that I thought about after watching The Endless was. If Richard Stanley hadn't done the Color Out of Space, I would have liked to see what those guys could have done with the Color Out of Space. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they're great. I can't wait for Synchronic, their new one. Yeah, and they seem like nice guys too. Every time I've tagged them in a Twitter post, they've liked it, which maybe it's selfish or maybe it's just they're interacting with their fans. Yeah. But it, it seems like they're they're decent guys who are really doing some interesting stuff. Even if I don't fully connect with the stuff they're doing, they are doing interesting things. Uh, so that's, you can certainly check that out as well. But, um, next time, full disclosure, we haven't fully locked down what we're doing next time, uh, but got some things in the works. We're probably going to, one way or another, we'll stick with spiritual adaptations. We typically like to do that for a month, go with direct or spiritual, have some things in the works, potentially where relevant to what we brought up in this conversation, we may be talking about underwater for our next film. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how that goes. But certainly stay tuned to our Twitter feed, our Facebook feed to learn about what's going on with that next time. Jerry, thanks a lot for joining us yeah. here on the West Coast. It's now Thank a little you. bit later, but this was uh, the first thing you did this morning, and we really greatly appreciate it. Thank I you. appreciate you guys having me on. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, but um, stay tuned uh, for, once again, our social media feed to see what we'll be doing for our next episode. But in the meantime, we'll be waiting and dreaming with Dead Cthulhu in his house in Relia.